Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Man, I could just sing like five more songs. Just the songs were excellent. Um, and everyone was just singing so loud. It, seriously, it was beautiful. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning, specifically in verses 25 through 34. And as you're turning there, uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And I love Christmas. I love it. This week, as I was walking through the sanctuary, there were some ladies up here putting up Christmas trees and um, just wrapping the stage, and I just started smiling because I love it. And I, I thought, I'm going to be preaching this morning between two beautiful Christmas trees, and I'm so excited. For all of you Grinches and Scrooges, I will pray for you, but I love it. I love Christmas. I love the thought of spending more time with family and friends. I absolutely love the thought of great food and lesser food as well, but it's also invited. Uh, We, I mean, come on. We all, seriously, you can laugh. We all have that one family member where we're like, you should just hand it off to somebody else. But most of it's really good. And, and I love the fact that we get to focus kind of so intensely on the birth narrative of, of Christ. It's, it's one thing I love about Christmas and about Easter. It's not that we don't celebrate these things all year long and proclaim them all year long, but we get to like hyper-focus on these moments. And I love it. It's so encouraging. And there's, there's so much joy to be found in this season. But if you're like me, there's, there's also things that cause your heart to be sad. Because you, you do know that you may go and spend time with your family members for this Christmas, and maybe you did it over Thanksgiving, and, and you realize that there, there's this loved one or this friend in your life that you see maybe once or twice or three times a year, and there's, there's just no hope for them. They are never going to believe the gospel. And year after year after year, you're around this person that you love, and year after year after year, they they don't believe the gospel. And and so in the midst of all of the joyous things, our hearts can still be sad. In fact, we can, if we're not careful, become very disheartened in those moments. I think the reason that that happens is because we think of conversion through the lens of human reason and logic. What, what we do is we look at a particular person, we look at the circumstances of their life, maybe you have a great-great-grandmother who cusses like a sailor, so that's like 10% off of her probability of being saved. Or far worse for you guys, you have a cousin who's a Tennessee fan and there's just no hope for him at all. But in all reality... I mean, all joking aside, it's it's what we do. 
we, we look at the circumstances of this person's life or past experience that we have. We, we know that they're just going to be combative against this, this gospel conversation. So really, why even try? And in our minds, which are fallen, by the way, we end up looking at these people and providing our own probability of conversion. And, and then what we can do is we can either find our hope or lose our hope in, in that. And I think it's the reason that we can be around these people year after year and become so disheartened because we just know that they're never going to accept the gospel. But Acts chapter 16 is really a reminder to us that the book of life is filled with unlikely converts who have been saved in unlikely ways, under unlikely circumstances, and in unlikely places, and in moments that we would never expect. In fact, the entire Bible teaches us that the only people that God saves are the unexpected. So you can turn over to Acts chapter 16 with me. We'll be in 25 through 34, but by way of introduction to the context, here in Acts chapter 16, we have the second missionary journey of Paul and Silas, and uh, they find this young man named Timothy, and he goes with them on this missionary journey. And we also can conclude from the context of our Bibles that Luke is also with them. Now, Acts chapter 16 starts with this idea that they will go out on this second missionary journey, and in the middle of the night, Paul, the apostle, has a vision of a man from Macedonia. I don't really know who this person is, probably it's an angel, but what happens is this man of Macedonia comes at night before Paul and he says, come to Macedonia and help us. And so they're like, okay, yeah, that seems pretty clear, let's go somewhere else. And as they're trying to do that, our Bibles tell us that the Spirit prevents them from doing that. And lo and behold, they find themselves on their way to Macedonia. And as they arrive in Macedonia, Paul and Silas think, you know, we should go to what would be a likely place where people would gather and worship God. And in the, the city of Philippi, it just so happens that that place is a river. And there are many women who gather at this river to worship God. And Paul and Silas make their way, and they meet this lady, this Jewish rich seller of purple named Lydia, and they share the gospel, and she believes. And, and she is, as far as we know, the first convert in Philippi. Well, they decide that they should go around preaching and teaching, and that's exactly what they do. And as they are doing this, this slave girl who is possessed by a demon and sold out by her masters to tell fortunes is following them around, and, they, and, she, and she keeps yelling as they go, these men serve the God most high, and they show you the way of salvation. And after a while, Paul's like, please be quiet, come out of her. All right, so, and, and like, that's just a, a, a small object lesson that even when demons are speaking what is true, there's falsehood and deception in it. And so Paul says, come out. If they need to hear the gospel, they will hear it from us. And we can conclude, because chapter 16 is all about the conversion of these unlikely people, that this slave girl 
comes to know Christ. And it makes her owners mad. They go and they give uh, true accusations and then false accusations which are revolving around racism and bigotry. Like, they, you guys, these are, these are Jews. I, can you believe they're coming into our city and doing these things? And so these men are arrested and they're placed in prison. And this is where we find ourselves. Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas in prison were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Well, let me pray, and then we will jump in together. Father God, thank you for this day. I pray that you would use your word to edify us and to reveal the truth of the gospel and the hope of the gospel to us this morning. We pray for our unbelieving friends in this room that you would open their eyes and their ears to see and to hear the hope and the peace that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, would you be honored in our preaching and our hearing and our living of the word of God. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. So I want to do something very simple for us this morning from this portion of Acts chapter 16, and it's this. I want to remind us that the hope of salvation rests in the power of the gospel alone, and that the sole power of the gospel is the work of Jesus Christ alone. And I think our text shows us this in two ways. The first is this. The gospel goes forth by the ministry of ordinary means. So as we make our way through this story, I want us to see something that's really important in the details here. So there is this earthquake that takes place, this, this extraordinary moment. And what I want us to not miss is that this extraordinary moment, these extraordinary results, these miraculous results are brought forward by ordinary means. So here we find Paul and Silas in prison and what they are doing, I, well, here's, here's what they could be doing. Here's what I would be doing. Let me say it that way. I would be crying. They, they've just been beaten. They are in the inner belly of the prison. And not only are they in prison, to add insult to injury, they're shackled by their feet in the middle of the prison. So it's like closed door, closed door, closed door, inner section of the prison, shackles. Like, you guys, I'm not going anywhere. And so here they are. Their backs hurt. Their ankles hurt. They're in the, the dark, wet belly of the prison, and, and they, they pray, and they sing. But, but here's what I, I don't want us to miss. Right in their praying and in their singing, 
comes divine power. So what I don't mean is that their faithfulness, right, that just, this, just this, this ordinary means of faithfulness in singing and praying to God, even in this horrible moment, it doesn't cause God to act. It's not as if He's like, well, I should do something now because they're praying and they're singing. In fact, what they are doing is they are a witness to the God who can do anything. In fact, what they are praying and singing about most likely is the fact that in this moment, they have already seen two people come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're in prison, and it seems like for most of us, we're thinking, yeah, this is not looking good for them. But they are singing and praying to a God who has just made dead people live. Two of the most unlikely people, a rich woman who needs nothing, who is worshiping God, and yet comes to realize, okay, well, I may be worshiping in the things I do, but I don't know Jesus. Teach me about Jesus, and comes to know Him. And then this girl, this slave girl, who is really just the scum of this society, is released from the captivity of a demon, and then the captivity of her own sin. And so as they are sitting here in this place, they have all of the hope in the world. And it extends so far beyond the walls of the prison they're sitting in. These ordinary means of faithfulness, prayer and singing, are accompanied by divine power that they have seen and that they will continue to expect from God. In fact, you know, we look at this and we think, wow, it's, it's really cool that God, like, sent an earthquake. And the doors opened and the shackles were let loose from their feet. That's, that's amazing. But I, I think for Paul and Silas, they're thinking, just wait. The earthquake is not even the most cataclysmic thing that will happen in this prison tonight. There is far greater power about to be shown in this place. If the earthquake scares you, just wait and see what God does next. Oh, they must have been thrilled to know that God had sent this earthquake, which meant that something even greater was coming. Right? The divine power goes far beyond God's rule over the world. Even pagan religions believe that there are gods who control the sea and the wind and the rain and crops. Nobody is impressed with a God who can do those things. But a God who can do what He's about to do in this prison is unheard of. And Paul and Silas, they know that God. You see, we misunderstand the gospel if we believe or act as if conversion or the work of salvation is dependent upon us and our efforts. You know, Paul and Silas, they were, they were just praying and singing. They, they, they could have been preaching. They, they could have yelled to the head jailer and said, hey, I, I just want to let you know this is not going to work out well for you. The God we know, I mean, seriously, they're just praying and singing and worshiping. Just, just ordinary things. Right, when we think that conversion is dependent upon what we do or don't do, we misunderstand the gospel. And in fact, when we think the gospel is dependent upon us, we limit the power of the gospel. 
Right? Salvation is never found in what we do. It is in what Christ has done. Their witness of praying and singing was simply pointing to the God who controls everything. One of the reasons that I loved the music so much this morning was because it was simply a witness of what God has done for us, His people. Over and over and over again, we were singing, we were praying, we were reading scriptures, and all of those things were not pointing to what we can or cannot do, it was pointing to what Christ has done. It it was showing us that the reality of our, our sinfulness, the hopelessness of our life, All of those things can be fulfilled and satisfied, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, but in Christ and what He has done. Friends, the ordinary means that God has called us to, gathering with His people, praying, singing, living out the gospel with our hands and our feet, they serve as a witness that goes far beyond us. It's as if in these moments our lives are merely signs that are pointing beyond ourselves and to our Lord. And it's in those ordinary moments that divine power is shown. That's what I don't want us to miss here in this moment, in this, in this prison, and, and seeing this earthquake. I don't want us to get wrapped up in these amazing things and miss the fact that it's just through the common faithfulness of these two men that God does amazing stuff. But I want us to see something else that's important and, and something that I think is poignant for pretty much all of us, either immediately or for someone that we know, and it's this, that Luke helps us and gives us a proper perspective of suffering. So jump back up to chapter 16, verses 19 through 24 with me for just a moment. Here it says, But when her, that is the slave girl who was possessed by a demon, when her owners saw that her hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows, probably like 36, upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So what what I want us to see here is that our suffering is always bigger than we know. Right? It, it, it always serves a purpose greater than we can even fathom in that moment. What, what I want you to understand is that affliction, life in a fallen world, is real. And it's very, very difficult. But as we look at the example of Paul and Silas, what, what I want to to not do is to waste our suffering. We can read the section that I pulled out for us, and if, you know, it's in like a Bible reading plan and that's the only thing you're reading, you're like, man, this is amazing. But these men were beat, like like whipped 30-some-odd times. 
and then placed into the inner part of the prison and shackled. Oh, friends, this is suffering. This is heartache. And not for a moment are we to think that it's not. Not for a moment are we to minimize how difficult this situation is. But here's what Paul tells the church in Philippi sometime later. In Philippians chapter 1, in verses 12 and 13 and 18 through 20, he says this about this moment. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is... Oh, I'm so sorry, that's not... 12 and 13, I, I messed up. 12 and 13, so starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And then skipping down to verse 18, it says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, and that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be... Christ." I'm so sorry, I don't know how to read. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul doesn't minimize the pain and suffering that takes place in a fallen world. But pain and suffering is a part of the ordinary means that God has given us to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in the moments that we can honestly just look down and think, man, my, my life is so hard, no one could understand, it's so difficult, it's so unfair. Friends, it's in those moments that likely we have one of the greatest opportunities to encourage people around us towards the hope of the gospel. I mean, think about it. Paul is saying, whether in life or in death, my prayer is that Christ is honored. Not just in my suffering, not just in my affliction, not just in the beatings, but even if I die, my prayer is that Christ is honored. Whatever you are facing right now, whatever it is that you are going through, whether it's momentary or whether it seems terminal or whether it is terminal, what I want you to know is that God will not waste it and you should not either. It has been placed into your life as a means of showing the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if through your suffering only one person sees truly the gospel, then God be glorified. It's through these ordinary things that we would never expect and maybe that we wouldn't even ask for in our own lives that God is honored. And He does extraordinary things by ordinary means. And so these are the means that we have been called to work in, in the ordinary ways, whether it's singing and praying or whether it's suffering well. But I want to remind us that it's through these ordinary things that God brings about extraordinary results. And for those results, we are not responsible. So the second thing is this, the gospel breaks down the walls of imprisoned hearts. 
So as the story unfolds, as we make our way into the prison with them, as they are singing, as this earthquake takes place, we see that this jailer, because of his honor towards Rome, thinks, well, if the prisoners have escaped, then I need to kill myself. I have failed in following the orders and the duties that I have been given, and because of that and because of my honor, I will end my life. And by the way, uh, had the prisoners escaped, they would have ended his life. So either way, you're dying. And that's what he resolves to do. But, but here's the thing. There's this moment where he, he's asking, okay, well, like, like, what do I do to need what do I need to do to be saved? Well, here's what I want us to see. One thing that's notable in this story is that the true prisoners are not revealed to us as Paul and Silas. In this story, Paul and Silas are never the ones that are revealed as the ones who need to be saved. Isn't that interesting? You would think that it would be our brothers that we need to get some guys together and break into the prison and break them out. They need, they need to be saved. They're, they're being held captive. Let's go in and let's get them. But the, the one who needs to be saved is actually the jailer. He's, he's the one who is actually in prison. It's not Paul and Silas who need to be saved. In fact, as you read through Acts chapter 16, all of Acts chapter 16 is, is, is pointing us to verse 30. This moment where he looks at these two men and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, here's the thing. This is a real question. And if you go and you try to study this and you read things, people are going to be like, you know... <clears throat> I don't really know that he was actually asking about salvation. It kind of seems like he just didn't want to die. So this is not really a spiritual thing per se, but you know what? I don't even care. Because do you want to know something? It is typically when people have no other option left in their life that the gospel seems the most pleasing to them. But, but for some reason, we think, well, now nah, you have to have like at least two other options left before you can actually accept the gospel. It can't be your last choice. Friends, it's the last choice of everyone who has ever been created. We were born dead men walking. We were all on our way to death. Does it actually matter if in this moment he just doesn't want to die and so he's like, what do I got to do to be saved? Well... If you really want to know, believe Jesus. Man, when we look around at, at our friends and our family members who, who just seem hopeless to us, like they are never going to believe the gospel, I mean, this person, I'm telling you, I have lived life with them for many, many years. This person is not one of the get saved people. I'm telling you. Sometimes all, all it takes is having no hope left to realize that there is hope to be found. Don't, don't ever discount anyone, even if it seems like their question comes from a place of selfishness. Friends, our responsibility is not for the question, 
It's for the truth we share. And that's exactly what Paul does. But the reality here is that our hearts, as, as you can see in this jailer, our hearts are imprisoned by sin unless we believe in Jesus. But if we have believed in Jesus, then no matter the circumstance we face, we are free. We are captive to no one and to nothing. Best of all, our sin. What Paul does here is simple and very specific. When this man asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He does something simple and specific. He points him to his only hope for eternal life. He, he doesn't come to him and say, okay, well, you know, I, I, I really would like us to get a few things straight in your life. N- number one, you should be a nicer person. Please don't hit people. It hurts. Also, don't put the shackles so tight. But let's get a little more serious. Uh, I need you to understand uh, first how baptism works. Or better than that, what I would like you to know is that God is one God and yet He is three persons. So I'm going to need you to chew on that for a little while, and then you can come back to me. I mean, friends, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't ask him to get his life straight. He doesn't ask him what transubstantiation is. He simply looks at this man and he says, If you want to be saved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And this man, in the belly of this prison, places his faith in Christ. Do you want to know something that is interesting? And really just an immediate sign of the Spirit's work in this man's life. Let's just go ahead and say he was going to kill himself out of honor. Let's say that his question was merely to save his life. Let's say that that's true. Well, in a moment, like in, in, in minutes, this man is now willing to claim Jesus Christ as his Savior no matter what the cost is. This man has just experienced something far greater and far more powerful than just an earthquake. For the first time in this man's life, his heart is beating with the life of the gospel. And and at the outset, he's willing to die for it. In fact, as you read the story, he wants to let them go. And they're like, no, 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 no. Uh, probably for two reasons. (laughs) Number one, you're only the third believer in Philippi. We're going to need a church. Also, we want these men to walk us out of this city because I'm about to tell them I'm a Roman citizen, right? So, So Paul has like a double agenda. 
number one, for the church, number two, uh, basically so the Roman authorities will look stupid. So, this is what happens. Put us, put us back. Brother, you don't need to die today. But praise God that you live. Back in Philippians, as Paul is introducing or, or his introduction really to his letter of the book of Philippians, and just think for a moment, as you're reading the book of Philippians, the first three believers in this church are Lydia, a demon-possessed girl, and a Roman jailer, right? So when you're reading this, see them, right? These unlikely people, these unlikely converts, these, for at least two of them, people that don't even make sense. Here's what Paul says in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. And, and, okay, so doesn't it give that a different meaning too, in remembrance of you? Not just like our time together worshiping, but like the things that I saw you come from, right? In my remembrance of you, that moment when I turned to you and I was like, leave me alone, get out of her, stop pestering us. That, you, do you remember, little girl, that moment when you met Christ to the jailer? Don't... Don't you remember that moment in the prison, the earthquake, the doors opening and the shackles bursting forth? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't mean in the prison. I mean in your heart. Do you remember that moment, how glorious it was? I thank my God in all remembrance of you, in every memory that I have of you. Always in every prayer of mine, for, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What I want you to understand, what I want to remind us of, is that Paul writes this entire book to the Philippian church. And all of it is grounded upon this. Believe in Christ. Those are the words that began the church of Philippi. Those simple words. Just this ordinary moment of sitting by a river with a woman. This kind of ordinary but also extremely unordinary moment of casting out a demon. But then the ordinary means of sharing the gospel. The ordinary means of praying and singing and pointing a man to Christ, these moments were accompanied by the power of God Himself through the ordinary, faithful means of His followers. All of these things happened 
because Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke obeyed the Lord and they pointed people to Christ where they were. And so we can conclude, this is, I'm so sorry, that's a horrible word, it's not the end of the sermon, but we can conclude this section. We're almost done, so like, calm down, but not quite. These words led to the salvation of the most unlikely people. And, and these words, believe in Christ, their effect led to faithful obedience. These these people said, well, if, I mean, if I can experience this and I have had this hope given to me this very night, what about my family? And then their families are saved. And then they follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And then years later, we see that those three words, believe in Christ, reverberate through all of Philippi and a church is established and a faithful hub of the gospel stands. All because of this. Believe in Jesus. Friends, if we think conversion or the power of the gospel is in what we do, then we misunderstand the gospel. Friends, as unbelievers have walked into this room today, are praying, are singing, are reading of Scripture, are preaching, has all been accompanied by divine power. And it is God who will work through those ordinary things to do extraordinary, unimaginable things in hearts. So as you spend time with unbelieving loved ones this Christmas, I want you to remember this. The gospel saves the unsavable. It offers hope to the hopeless and it gives life to the dead. Even to the people that you would never expect and that you would never assume. But as we really end now, I will say that this may be true for you. You may be sitting here this morning, and you may be the next unlikely convert. It may be that God has spoken to you through His Word, through our prayers, through the heralding of the gospel, and that even now, because He is powerful, even now, the Spirit of God is opening the door of your heart that you might welcome into your life the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes the unlikely, unexpected people are not people that we see around us, but it's, it's us. We think, you don't know where I've been, you don't know what I've done, you don't know what kind of family that I come from. I'm not the savable type of person. And I would just remind you that the gospel is far more powerful than that. But you might be asking, how can this happen? There's no earthquake. At least give me an earthquake. To that I say, I can't. It's just an ordinary Sunday. There's nothing really special about today. And again, I would simply remind us of the power of the gospel. It's through the ordinary means of proclaiming the gospel that God does the extraordinary work of saving sinners. And if you're sitting here thinking, even me, yes, even you, 
what must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. In just a moment, we're about to do another really ordinary thing, and that is celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you are a believer, I would invite you to partake of this meal with us, but if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if you are living in unrepentant sin, I would ask you to not partake of this meal, not as a way of calling you out or punishing you, but because we take God's Word seriously, and we would never want to be a part of having you do something that you're not prepared to do. And so if you have placed your faith in Christ, we would ask you to celebrate this meal with us. In just a moment, the worship team is going to come and lead us. And as they come, they'll have you stand. And as you are ready, we would ask that you make your way to one of these tables and get the elements. And then as you go back to your seat, you can wait and Robert Ward will lead us in receiving the elements together. But as the worship team comes, I will lead us in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be honored and glorified through it. We pray that you would, Father, speak to us from your word and encourage us, embolden us in the gospel. And Father, we pray that wherever you would have us in these coming days and months, that you would use us as your heralds, that you would use us as your mouthpieces, that you would work through the ordinary means of our lives to do extraordinary things. Because Father, the examples that we have seen in your word show us that that's exactly what you do. It's not in our abilities or lack thereof, it's in the power of the gospel as we point people to Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for us. So Father, we pray that you would use us and we pray that you would even this day use this message to save an unbelieving heart in this place. And would you be honored and glorified and would Christ be exalted because of it. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.